Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Josh Justice. Based in Conyers, Georgia, Josh is a professional software developer with nearly 20 years of experience in the field. He's currently principal architect and web platform lead for Big Nerd Ranch, a web and mobile consultancy based in Atlanta. You can't follow him on Twitter at Coding It Wrong for reasons we'll go into later, but you can check out his website at codingitwrong.com, and you can also subscribe to his YouTube channel, Coding It Wrong, and you can also find him uh, on Twitch under the same handle. Josh is the author of the LeanPub book, Outside In React Development, a TDD Prime. In the book, Josh takes the reader through the concept of outside-in test-driven development, or TDD of the title, and how this approach can help you do software testing that actually helps you go faster in your application development rather than slowing you down. Along the way, using the principles of outside-in test-driven development, you'll build a front-end React application from scratch in an extended exercise across multiple chapters. In this interview, we're going to talk about Josh's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a content creator and self-published author. So thank you very much, Josh, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Glad to be here, Len. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and programming. Yeah, I've lived in the Atlanta, Georgia area for pretty much my whole life. And my dad worked in IT, and so he would bring in uh, bring computers home from the office from time to time. We were just talking about the Macintosh SE up on my wall that I've just been able to get one in the last couple months. If folks haven't heard of him, it's one of the earliest Macs. And when you think about that form factor of the monitor built into the little rectangular machine, that's the one. So he would bring home different computers. We would try them out. The other thing that played a role was Nickelodeon, the kids' TV channel, had a TV show called Clarissa Explains It All. On this show, she uh, would make computer games about her annoying little brother. She was a middle school student. And I was like, kids can make computer games? That's amazing. I want to do it. Um, a lot of folks from traditional programming backgrounds um, came up wanting to make video games and things like that. What I found was that making video games is really hard and not fun, even though playing them is fun. But I really have fun building utility apps and CRUD apps and business apps. And so I decided, well, I'll play video games and I'll make utility apps. And that's the way that'll go. Um, but I came up in uh, my high school years is when the web was starting to become a thing. So I did web programming, computer science major, and from there worked at a whole variety of places doing software development, mostly focused on web development with some forays into native mobile development as well. And so when you were doing this um, early kind of web development, early for you and early for the web, um, uh, what, what kind of resources did you have to draw on? I mean, for example, were there magazines that you would buy where you would sort of learn how to program from that or were there, were there at the time websites you could go to you know in the real early days um books paper books were a few of the resources and i remember a online resource called web monkey i think wired magazine might have been the ones that supported that and that was one of the first web development resources to learn about html and then later css because css didn't come until later anyone who knows web will maybe have their mind blown by that um, so yeah, there's, there's some early online resources there kind of taking advantage of the medium, but, um, paper books played a big role for me as well. I remember, um, I think it was teach yourself Perl in 28 days, Perl being a programming language. It was about two inches thick. And I remember going through that one. Um, so yeah, books, paper books have played a big role in my, uh, learning, um, and growth as a person in a lot of different ways over my life. It's really interesting. I'm, 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 no one can see it, but I'm looking at the at the Mac behind you on the shelf there, and it reminds me that it's, it's very, very similar to the first Mac that we had in our in our household, um, the first computer we had in our household. And um, I remember everybody, you know, pe people who maybe aren't aren't as old as we are, <laughs> uh, might might still be aware of the very famous 1984 ad 
um, that Apple came out with where there's, and I think the Olympics were on in Los Angeles or something like that. And there's um, some, a sort of athlete running down the aisle in a cinema and throws a, you know, big hammer at this big brother kind of figure on the screen with all these kind of zombie like people watching it and the screen shatters and, you know, it's supposed to be some message about freedom or, or, or something. Uh, but the, the, the Mac ad that most struck me at the time, I think it was around that time was, I think they just, someone just like picks up the Mac out of a box and plugs it in. And there's this shot of them just plugging it in and it's like, away you go. And of course you plugged in all, all personal computers were plugged in when you took them out of a box. You know what I mean? But there was something about it. Oh, like the message it sent was, I don't have to learn anything to set it up. I can just plug it in and click a button and my computer's going. Uh, there was no command line prompt, you know, run, go, go computer. You know, <laughs> there was nothing like that, that you needed to do. And that was just an amazing, amazing marketing tactic. Yeah. And, you know, there's a focus there on usability and removing unnecessary detail that has actually been a big theme for me as well. Um, I'm drawn to programming languages that have the same sense of let me focus on the key thing that I want to do. Um, you know, Apple's ad was about just as a user, I didn't even know that I could use a computer. Oh, I can do something with it. Or as a programmer, let me program in a way that helps me focus on solving the problem. Uh, the only software I have running on that Mac is HyperCard, which is this old, uh, really revolutionary programming environment that allowed average users to create interactive software. Um, and it was at miles above the kind of low-level compiled code that was the other alternative at the time. Um, and really, even in my focus on testing um, and kind of content creation, it's really all about like, how can I get people the, the most useful thing so they can be productive and, and uh, build reliable, helpful, useful software and that not everybody needs to be a nerd that thinks about every single detail of all the esoteric programming approaches, testing approaches. You know, someone who wants to go deep, go deep. But I want to equip people who don't want to go so deep or maybe even, uh, you know, start an interest. Like as a kid, I was interested in making video games. And I found that for me, I was interested in going deep, becoming a professional software developer and really digging into expertise. But if other people can benefit from computers or creating software as well, it's a win-win. That leads me to ask a kind of, selfish question which i do from time to time on the podcast but you know it, it's something i don't know why i've been thinking about more lately than usual but this concept of being a nerd and this the idea that like there's something special about programming computers that distinguishes it from building other kinds of things you know the the person just looking at your mac you know that's nearly a 40 year old computer you know personal computers are older older than that by by some distance as well and yet to this day there's a sort or sort of you know just kind of psychological constituency that you know of people that sort of views the computer as not real you know we we talk about virtual things as though somehow you're in a ghostly realm when you start using this particular machine um and it's not it's not about building and it's not about logical chains right because you know the same person who might be like oh no i could never program a computer might be happy opening the hood of a of an old car and kind of like you know looking at how everything fits together and figuring out how to fix it. Do you have any just general thoughts about that? Why is it that there's something about computer programming that's sort of seen as kind of nerdy or, or you know sort of only accessible or or enjoyable to a specific mindset? You know that question really hits on some things that I care deeply about because I see two trends in programming or two in software and computers or two philosophies. Actually, uh, one of the books that's been most impactful to me talked about two views of software in terms of literal, actual philosophy, historical philosophers. And there is a view, and I actually, where I'm going with this is a bit different than that author. It's uh, Object Orient, shoot, what is the name? Object Thinking by David West is the book. But actually, I realized that where I'm going with this is a bit different than where he was. 
um, because within the realm of like the logic that computers can do, it's so infinitely malleable. Um, there's always more that you could do and more ways you could rearrange those bits and get those functionalities and get those user interfaces and get that data flow to work. And so I think there's, and because it's sort of in a sense, easy to move those things around, there's always the temptation to go deeper and deeper into optimization and lower and lower level and um, really make things more complicated for yourself. And sometimes for some organizations and for some people's personal wirings, that's helpful. Google has certain very intense needs. You know, Microsoft has certain very intense needs. I mean, uh, you know, Netflix. Um, and yet for smaller businesses, for individuals, for personal projects, you can get a sense of like, oh, unless I'm using all of those technologies, I'm not a real developer. Um, and so I, I think kind of really a low level thing it relates to is being willing to hold things in tension where it's like, oh, it's really cool that those technologies exist. And I really respect the folks that can understand those hard problems in a deep way, but that doesn't make me less. Because I, as I said earlier, I like making simple utility apps. Um, you know, we do professional stuff that has some complexity, but a lot of the user interfaces I create are just different ways to show on the screen, you know, different kinds of relational uh, data and to make, you know, create, read, update, and delete. Like really you, all those data changes you could summarize with that. And um, there's the term that I think is used beyond software, but certainly in the software world is imposter syndrome. The idea that like, oh, I don't really know what I need to know. And if only I knew it, uh, if people knew how little I do know, they'd realize that I'm an imposter, I'm a fake. Um, and something that I really resonate with in the software world is um, a, a focus to, to, to work against that, a focus on inclusivity, a focus on people from different backgrounds so that it's not that everybody needs to code or should code, but if a mechanic find something that they're trying out software and they're using it and they're like, you know, I wish I could customize this and they find a way to do it. I hear so many people that I work with, even at the consultancy that I'm at, they talk about like, oh, I was working in this other industry. I started using software. I started customizing the software. And I found that I was more interested in working on the software than in the problem that we were solving. And I got into the industry. And so I think that mentality helps serve as a great check for people that um, are really theoretical or really down in the technical details to know um, like, hey, software is useful for other people as well. And, you know, it's very valuable to have people from all different backgrounds, the arts, literary, literary world, like cooks, you know, cu cuisine, to have folks from those backgrounds, sociology and psychology, for goodness sake, for sure, to have those folks working in the software industry in various roles, it makes better software and it makes better solutions. And I think when we see that, um, that it's not just, oh, I want these people to feel included, but I see that my software is better when they're contributing, um, then I can really say, wow, like this is an industry where there's a place for everyone. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting when you mentioned when you mentioned sort of seeing there, right, you know, um, uh, when uh, and, and particularly, you know, sort of people who might be sort of, say, working with the software for a car and they can and they can actually like change the way it works. Uh, and this kind of tangibility and visibility, I think what the, the closer I think that that sort of programming gets to kind of something like that, that people of a certain mindset can relate to the less the less ghostly and virtual, it seems it's like, no, like, you know, I I tinkered with it and now you know, I, I can turn off the alarm on my car whenever I click this button or something like that, you know, uh, so yeah. it won't accidentally go off when I park it at this loud place or something like that. Um, and, and the, and I think that this is, I mean, over time, obviously, like it has been 50 years since the personal computer came out, maybe it'll be another 50, but eventually I think it'll just be an ordinary technology to most people like a, like a toaster or anything like that. Um, and, and lose this sense of, of, of exclusivity to a particular group. And I'm really glad you picked up on that, that 
you know, the, the getting rid of this, there's, there's more than one form of exclusivity that's often associated with, with programming for, for obvious reasons and, and getting beyond that and making it, you know, more accessible to people in, in, in the sort of very literal sense, but in the sort of more expansive sense is really important for changing the way people view programming and technology generally. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, you studied computer science. I think nowadays people will be like, oh, well, that's that's your ticket to a high paying job. It wasn't necessarily at the time. Was that was that something that you studied because, uh, well, I mean, obviously you had, as you spoke about, you had you were already interested in computers and stuff, but was it something that you studied with a view to the, this is going to lead to a great paying job or was it something that you studied more just because you were inherently interested in it? It was definitely the inherent interest. Um, I wasn't specifically thinking about pay or anything like that. Um, I think my parents were very glad that what I happened to be interested in uh, was doing quite well uh, most of the time uh, throughout the decades. Um, and so they were very happy to encourage me towards that. Um, although there was a stint where um, I decided I transferred. I was at Georgia Tech, um, which is a big public science focused Southern, uh, mostly male at the time. Um, hopefully that's changed some organization. And I just, after one semester, I decided to transfer to a small, private, New England, uh, Christian, mostly female school um, and take up a Bible study degree. And they were like, what is he doing? What? So they, but luckily it had a computer science program and they were like, hey, how about a double major? And I was like, cool, we'll do a double major. I ended up just doing the computer science major, graduating from there. And in, in my view, got a great education there. Um, but yeah, that was sort of my, my, my dalliance. It was, it was a great for life growth and uh, socially and kind of getting out of that. I've always lived in Atlanta. I'm just an Atlanta person. It was great to be stretched in that way. Uh, we'll get to the um, combination of religion and programming uh, shortly. Uh, but um, before we do that, um, I, I sort of have to ask you, given the fact that it comes up so often on this podcast, um, and we've already talked a little bit about the, how learning on computers and how to, how to program has evolved and things like that. If you were starting out now, uh, let's say in that in that double major, um, and you were, you know, would would you, with the intention of becoming a programming a programmer and having a, a career in programming, would you actually study computer science formally at university in the current environment, or would you maybe just use all the resources that are available to be more self directed? Yeah, the question comes up a lot when I'm in meetups or meeting people wanting to get into the programming industry and things like that, um, and I feel like I'm not one of the most equipped to answer. There's folks that have come up through those other paths more recently, and I really ask them for their advice as we go and you know, try to lean on them. But I will give some thoughts right now, um, which is I see, I don't feel like a computer science degree certainly is essential to get into software development or to be an excellent software developer. Um, it's not the main or first thing that I would point people towards. Um, now, if someone's coming out of high school and has a big interest in programming, um, and they're going to, they're wanting to go to college and do something because they value that for a variety of reasons, then computer science is what I would direct them towards. Um, there's a lot of folks that come through computer science, um, even back in the day before code schools and other learning approaches were more common, that said, oh, why am I learning all this theoretical stuff? This isn't useful. I want to learn how to build this or that. Um, and then after time, a number of folks, 10 years later, 15 years later, realize like, wow, like my software is really fragile. Like I'm having challenges here. Oh yeah, software design, object-oriented design, you know, planning out architecture. Yeah, you know, that that's actually pretty helpful. Um, and whether they make the connection or not, I feel like they end up drawing on or coming back to some of those things that were taught there. Um, and yet there's also a lot of practical things that don't come up in a computer science 
theoretical focus. So I guess maybe my ultimate answer would be that to really encourage folks to pick and choose the approach that works for them. What is your life circumstances? What is available? Um, you know, if you are a single parent or you're working multiple jobs um, or you have limited access in your environment to technology, um, you know, just take advantage of the resources you have and be encouraged um, that there are a lot of great things out there and, and don't fear that you can't make it because you're not getting a degree. Um, but if some of those uh, code school, of, you know, university course, if that's appealing to you and it's available, um, I think there is a lot of benefit. That's my both ands answer. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a really great answer. Um, uh, and uh, and of course, you know, we the, the one thing we would add to to which you just sort of gestured towards with what's available to you, but also money, um, is yes. a really important thing too, particularly in the United States. Uh, but that's you know becoming a growing issue uh, elsewhere, of course, as well. Um, I mentioned we'd, we'd connect religion and, and programming. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you graduated and you started getting jobs and you've done a couple of stints for um, North Point Ministries, um, I believe it's called. Yes, that's right. Uh, right. And um, which is a non-denominational evangelical megachurch organization. And I was just wondering, I mean, for people listening, you know, we, we've had people who've actually worked for religious organizations on the podcast before. And I think a lot of people might be just curious to, to know, like, what what kind of work is there for programmers to do at, you know, big megachurches? Yeah, it, we get the question a lot, even when I was working there, like, oh, you you have a web team? More than one person? What? Um, yeah, I think what it comes down to, I was just talking to someone that I used to work with there, um, and she was mentioning the the scale that happens once you get to a certain size. So North Point Ministries in particular has, I think, about eight or nine campuses in the Atlanta area. Um, with about 100,000 people between them attending regularly. They also are working with a network of other churches. Um, so there's dozens of those around the country and some around the world that are um, separate legal and financial organizations, but share a lot of like strategy, certainly beliefs and also strategy for how to go about church. And so they partner up and share ideas back and forth and everything. And so when you get to that kind of scale, all of a sudden something that would work as a paper signup form for a church of 100 people, all of a sudden it's like, okay, we need this registration form to be online and it needs to be reliable and we need to not have to manually process credit cards. That needs to just work. And so just as the size and quantity of people coming through scale up, um, if you're in an organization that uh, that is that a church uh, nonprofit that is that size and believes in being that size and finds that that's strategic, which there's different views on, um, then yeah, building software internally works. Interestingly, in being there, we went back and forth over the years and the different times that I've been there in the build versus buy concept that comes up in a lot of organizations in terms of do we want to write custom software internally or do we want to use things off the shelf and is that a better value? And, and something that's really unique, I think, even amongst megachurches at North Point is they have a a high desire of, and not saying that others don't do these, but I think there's a both and here that's, that's fairly unique. Um, they want to have sort of cohesive standards as far as like doing things with excellence. Um, it's a big, big focus, whether it's the um, the Sunday morning productions, uh, that, that's good, but also being welcoming and that people get the information they need. I mean, that's one of the big things that struck me is it's not all about the show. It's about there in particular. It's about if you show up as a stranger who don't know, doesn't know anyone there, do you feel welcome? Do you feel informed and that, that this was created for you? Or do you feel like you're looking in on something strange and alien that you don't know what it is and you don't know if you're really actually allowed to be here? Um, 
I'm, I'm getting distracted from the details, but so th there's a real focus on a very particular way of doing things. Um, and so that would lean towards, oh, let's, let's write it ourselves. We want to be able to have the software work, the websites, the event registrations, the church database to do things in a very particular way that really fits with our model and how we things feel like things are best done. But there's also a very strong focus on stewardship. Like people are donating, all this money is something that people have donated because they believe in what we're doing. We don't want to waste it. And so that leans towards, okay, do we really want to write this custom? Like, do we really want to build something? So they really innovated and thought a lot about something that is happening in the business world as well, which is how can we stitch together these various services? Like, how can we outsource the things that don't need to be our core business for, right? certainly for payment charging, for tracking members and having people's information there, for event registration, for social media and things like that? Um, how can we really let another company be the experts in that and we can be customers of them and use that to um, be most cost effective as we provide things. So there's a real tension there that over the years, build versus buy, they, they, they're they still learning. They're still trying to figure out how to do that most effectively. Actually, yeah, that, that's that's really great. That, that um, leads me on to the next next question I want to ask you um, uh, about a blog post that you wrote, I think not too long ago about, um, you know, how to decide between different technologies and how to talk about it with people, um, which can be controversial sometimes and is related to what you were talking about with imposter syndrome. But I can't help but bring up, you You were reminding me um, of, uh, I hate to, you know, my Mennonite background doesn't really want to talk about religion and the military in the same breath. But um, you, when you were talking about uh, working for North Point, it reminded me and the discussions you would have, it reminded me a little bit of a podcast I listened to not too long ago, I think from uh, the Center for Strategic International Studies, which was with um, a very high ranking American general, military general. And he said, one of the challenges we face is that when people show up, we might not be prepared to meet their expectations. And it's funny because you think, you know, that the sort of new recruit has all these expectations that the military is desperate to meet, shouldn't it be the other way around. But, you know, when, when someone shows up and they're like, you know, they, they, they need to get their payment set up, how are you going to pay me? And they're like, what, where's the app? <laughs> and and the sort of military guy goes actually here's a triplicate form with a carbon copy background and stuff that you know the, the, that that potential new recruit might just walk right out the door uh and nowadays if, if you're recruiting people or if you're trying to get people interested in joining your organization or doing things with you you really do have to be prepared uh in one way or another and it is a choice you know your choice for a religious organization could be we don't do any of that you know here you're free of all that kind of things or it might be Welcome. We've got we've got you know multiple places things you can sign up for, multiple groups you can join. We've got meetups, things like that, and it can be a really interesting it can be a really really interesting challenge um, for big organizations in particular. But anyway, the the, the question I wanted to ask you about was um, your uh, post was called um, let me see if I find it, disagreeing about tech respectfully, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that post, uh, which yeah I, I think you published it in February. Uh, what what motivated you to write that? And of course I'll link to it in, in the transcript, but it's. It's uh, it's basically a way of uh, it's a bunch of guidelines for getting through conversations yourself or with others who might be um, combative rather than productive. Yeah, I was really excited about that post. And so I'm happy to talk about it because it's sort of a distillation of things that are becoming more and more significant to me over the last five or six years. Um, working at Big Nerd Ranch, I think that in many, many ways they do this really, really well. Um, but certainly not perfectly. And so I've seen chance, circumstances where it hasn't happened that we've sort of learned from and have been able to say to me or to someone else like, hey, like this is not really living up to our standard of the way we converse about these things. Um, and just about the idea that, you know, related to what you were saying before about like the exclusivity of the software world. I mean, it, it, it's a fractal all the way down 
like, oh, not just a programmer, but oh, you use one of those programming languages. That's a bad language. I saw even a diagram years ago of a diagram of programming languages in terms of who looks down on the others. And so there's a there's a, a, a strict dependency ordering, maybe with a, some cycles in there. Um, but uh, I've seen something a lot better. And really uh, what I found is that the, the people I respect the most are the people that are able to interact positively. Um, there's an aspect of it that's just kindness in terms of just not being a jerk to other humans, which you know a lot of people get into software. I shouldn't say a lot because things are very diverse, but there's a subset of traditional folks that get into software because they really don't want to interact with other people and they really want to be in a closet and working on code. And um, there, I mean, there's personal wirings. There's even, uh, you know, the, that is totally fine. Um, but for a lot of software development, for the majority of places, you are interacting with other people and certainly on social media. Um, and so, um, you know, so just wanting to be kind to other people is one aspect sort of driving this um, that I think makes that better. Um, but there's a deeper thing um, that comes from that object thinking book that I mentioned before. I think this is where it really started to resonate with me. An idea of uncertainty, that you don't really know things for sure. This actually ties to the agile software development world that my kind of TDD book comes out of and I'm very influenced by. Um, so I, it's, it's a, a, something that I've really come to embrace in a large way. Another thing that draws folks to software, some folks, is the idea of certainty. It's ones and zeros. It's black and white. You tell the computer to do something and it does it reliably. Unless there's a network connectivity drop or cosmic rays or a user clicks something you don't expect. So the you know users of software bring uncertainty, but also business uncertainty like, oh, the requirement is we build the system this way. But then a month later, oh, actually the business decided we kind of want something else. Um, not just to be flippant, but maybe the market decided they want something else. Or we all thought about it and we thought that this way of building something was going to work. But no matter how much effort we put into it, when you actually get into the code, you find, oh, yeah, there's something we missed. It's like there's, there's a contradiction there. It's not going to work out. And so the agile software development world really encourages folks to think in terms of uncertainty. You cannot know the future. Um, you don't know where your software is going to go or where the world is going to go. I think in 2022, we can feel that uh, very strongly. And so making decisions about how you approach software in light of that uncertainty. Back to the blog post, I think that view of uncertainty affects how you see other things as well. The way I think about it now is I have certain programming languages that I think are really effective for me. I have certain practices like agile development and test-driven development that are really effective for me. But I don't know another programmer's circumstance. Different people's wiring is different. Test-driven development resonates with some people like me wiring much stronger than others. So for me, I just inherently love it. For other people, it's a chore, it's a slog. And so you need to really be in a circumstance where you get the benefit for it to be worthwhile. Um, I don't know someone else's organizational circumstances. I don't know other industries and what the real constraints are and how things might go. And so when I, I, I leaned far away from saying this is a best practice or this is the best way to go or this technology is better than others. And really to speak for myself, like, like here's a benefit that I get. Here's a benefit that I see. Um, I'm even just remembering when I first got to Bigner Branch and I'd ask about the standards or the best practices. And to a person, their response would be, I, we kind of stay away from the term standards, but for me, here's what I tend to do. And here's a benefit that I see. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that sense of really philosophical uncertainty there, or you could say recognizing different contexts. 
Um, even being willing to hold two things in tension that aren't logically resolved. Like I, you know, you're a different person. You have a different view on software than me. Um, I can allow that to exist. Some folks struggle with that, with allowing that to exist. Um, and when I think you really embrace that, you get to a point where you can learn from anyone. Where it's like, oh, you have an opposite view of me on something. Like, I would love to learn from you. Like, tell me about it. Not, not feeling like we have to have win an argument coming out of it. Not even feeling like I, I might disagree with most of what you say, but I might get an insight on something. Like, oh, I've learned about something that leads her to choose a certain choice. Or, oh, there's a circumstance that um, would lead someone to that one, but I don't have that circumstance. It's not a problem that I have. So you learn from those things. So I think those are some of the themes behind these specific kind of guidelines and recommendations in there that me and some of my friends uh, recommended and put in there. And um, yeah, I just feel like software is so much, and just human interaction in general is a lot less stressful um, and a lot more productive when you can, when you don't have to be right and not everything needs to be black and white. Yeah, um, when you mentioned uh, in general there, it's one of the things that really struck me about your post is that, and I don't know how deliberate this is, but it's, it's um it doesn't necessarily need to be specific to discussions of technology that these rules apply. Um, it could it could very much be um, uh, about politics or it could be about philosophy. But on another on a sort of even like, I don't know, deeper, or higher level of uh, um, it's basically ex making explicit the unwritten rules of an intellectual conversation. Um, uh, so, for example, describing the downsides of your preferred technology along with the upsides uh, is one of them. And one thing I really like here, I'm trying to. Oh, yeah represent other viewpoints as fairly as you can. And probably my favorite one was um, a disagreement with your idea isn't an opposition to you as a person. And this, I think, is something that like, you know, there's a million ways you can divide people up into two kinds of people. And there's two kinds of people with that one. I mean, there's some people for whom that ability to sort of understand and internalize that we're talking about the idea, not about ourselves, comes very naturally. And I think there's other people who don't have that concept at all. They really think everything is about you and me in this and our status and whether we respect each other and stuff like that. And for people with that mindset, a disagreement is an insult. Do you have any thoughts on on that? What to do when you encounter someone who just you know like let's let's just say like it whatever mood they're in isn't isn't doesn't have the sort of it's not available to them emotionally to kind of abstract away like that how do you deal with with disagreements about let's say i mean because it can be in the technology space right when when someone's just it, their 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 personhood is at stake in what they're discussing yeah let me a general thought came to mind so let me say that and then i'll answer your question i when you were listing out those specific guidelines in there it struck me it's like oh i don't know that i'm very good at those actually not that i was saying that i was ever saying that i was great at everything in that document but those ones in particular it's like yeah i think i struggle with that sometimes it's it's not totally obvious to me oh at all times i am totally separated from my ideas and it's totally neutral and i think an observation i had as i was thinking about that is it depends on the relationship. When I have a relationship with someone that is built on trust and positive interactions, and that I know it gives me a way to interpret what they're saying as, oh, they're discussing idea. I know they respect me. I know they're kind towards me versus someone that has a track record of being abrasive or curt towards me, or has even demonstrated that they conflate ideas and people. Um, it, it's hard. I tend to get riled up and I think it relates to combining myself with the ideas and, and there. So the, the relationships help. And I, I think that does lead into an answer to your question. Um, I guess maybe now that I think about it, I sort of recognize where the relationship is. 
I recognize like, okay, this is a person, you know, you, you really emphasize their wiring, which is a key part of it. Um, and or the relationship I have with them at this point is one where that separation of ideas and people is not clear. And I think I will, um, in like a social environment or a social media environment, I might, the, the principle I came to on social media, and I wish I knew, I'm sure someone tweeted it. And so I wish I knew so I could credit them, was basically, if I reply, how, and then they reply, how likely am I to feel better versus feel worse? And I've had enough bad Twitter experiences that I just have a feel now for like, I will feel worse in, in a certain case. And maybe 80% of the time, I'm now able to say like, okay, not going to reply. And that's okay. Now in a work environment, it's differently. You're working with this person. And so thinking through, I, I find I really need to gather my thoughts. Talking about writing as a topic, journaling, writing out notes is, is what I do. Like, okay, what's going on in this circumstance? That is a way to set, set aside the person and my personal feelings from it. Like, okay, they have this thought and they're approaching the team in this way. Um, and so I make I can make a plan not to take them through a script, but to have ideas for what to bring up in a conversation with them that might be productive to get us to an understanding. Um, I, I find myself more able now in, than earlier in life to affirm things from people. Hey, I see that you really care about this. And I think that's really great. I do too. Or thank you for advocating for that on our team and, and really meaning like being genuine. That's a big part of that communication as well. Um, and then saying, taking it down to like, oh, when you just talk in this way, when you interact in this way, it's causing our team challenges or it makes me have trouble knowing how to respond to you. Um, let's talk about it. And a lot of times people say, oh, wow, like that, that's not what I meant. That's not how I meant to come across. Wow. Now we have sort of a connection on that. Um, so in, in a work environment that can be helpful or, you know, family environment and environment, you're going to be with folks a lot. That can be a helpful way just to, to get real in a sense there. It's, I, I don't reach for it as quickly as I should, but when I do get a time to do that, it, it is often beneficial. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much for sharing that really thoughtful answer, um, and uh, and also for making the connection to social media, which is this sort of next thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, just to just to you know manage that segue a little bit. Um, one of the things I also really liked about your about your post is that it can offer a, an interest. It's also can serve as a kind of guide to evaluating not only yourself but but other people and their trustworthiness and whether they're acting in acting in good faith. Reminds me of the, the problem of um, choosing a martial arts teacher when you've never done any martial arts before. How do you know the person's not a complete sham? Uh, you know, you, you have to, you have to have, you, you can't really know until you've had some experience, but you've still got to dive in and decide. And choosing who to follow, who to look up to as a thinker and things like that can often pose the same challenge for people who are trying to, trying to get into the world of ideas, uh, you know, for example. Um, and, uh, and, and having some guidelines along the way that are just kind of generically apply can be good, not only to apply to yourself, but to see, is this person presenting the people they oppose in a charitable or fair light? Are they just giving me the dumbest version of what their opponent might be? Are they trying to activate in me, um, emotions about myself rather than the idea being discussed, you know, like, are they trying to make me feel looked down upon by someone else, for example? Well, now all of a sudden we're not talking about an idea. Now what's happening is I'm being pushed emotionally around to sort of feel looked down upon and then to get maybe to get that reaction elicited from me. Uh, but on that note, you decided, as I mentioned at the, in the introduction, to, to leave Twitter. Uh, you mentioned just now some sort of bad experiences about replying and replies and replies and replies and stuff like that. And I was and you've, you've got a post about it, which I'll which I'll link to. 
uh, in the uh, transcription. But if you could talk a little bit about that decision, because I think it's something all of us who are on Twitter think about from time to time. Should I do this? How much should I do this? How should I do this? Should I just leave? Wouldn't my life be better if I just didn't do it? And so, yeah, if you could just share your thoughts on 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 Twitter and and specifically your decision to get off of it. I have so many, so I'm going to try to give one sentence per thought and, and keep things moving. I was an extremely heavy Twitter user to the point that the last time I left a job at Northland Ministries, one of the feedback I got was, maybe don't be on Twitter so much in the middle of meetings and conversations, Josh. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I have made so many great connections and folks that I still stay in touch with over email. Um, there's there's other authors of uh, books that I've met and they're kind enough to give me thoughts over email now and everything. So that was really great. I At the time of using Twitter, I really enjoyed it over years and years and years. Um, and the idea of just having a place to throw thoughts out there and to assemble like, oh, who has thoughts that are useful and helpful to me and links and references. That was really, really great. And I enjoyed it. Um, I got, um, so my wife and I have been married for 13 years now. Uh, as we started uh, having children and raising kids, we have three small children. Um, she was researching the uh, negative effects that screens can have on kids' development. And it's like, okay, I always envision, oh, my kids are gonna have all the technology, all the video games. And she is like, well, actually there's a lot of downsides. And actually a lot of the Silicon Valley folks severely limit the iPads and phones that their kids have. Like, oh, wow, interesting. So that sort of planted a seed for thinking differently about technology. Um, then a few years ago, I watched a documentary called The Social Dilemma that was talking a lot about a lot of the downsides of social media, in particular, corporate social media with algorithms. Um, the fact that um, the business is advertising. And so they're using all the data they can for advertising. And, and I would go so strong as to agree with them to say, uh, surveillance in terms of extracting information that you as a person don't really want to be providing and you aren't being informed that that information is being provided and used and the negative psychological effects that that can have. So that really implanted, I was like, wow, like got me thinking like, what do I think about social media and Twitter and Facebook and things like that and using them. Um, then uh, January 6th happened in the U.S. Uh, so the invasion of the U.S. Capitol um, by folks trying to prevent um, the legitimate results of an election. Um, and I, it was, it, I'm sure there was some people more devastated by it than me, um, but I was pretty devastated by it, pretty affected. Um, some ideals I had about things go smoothly in the United States were really disavowed and set aside for me then. And as I thought about what had already been said about the impact on, of, of Twitter and other social media on uh, extremism, uh, not just specific views, but just causing views to become extreme by being in echo chambers and how the incentives, even, even if all the leaders of those companies wanted and did their hardest to work against that, that the incentives of advertising-based social media drive towards those things, maybe inexorably. Um, and so I was just like, you know what, like this is, this is not helping. Um, so I decided to get off Twitter. Um, I was privileged enough not to be in a place where I, I had to be on there for my work. Um, so I, I would say back to the point of disagreeing, I don't judge individuals or companies that are on Twitter. Like everybody needs to make the choice for themselves. And I would rather for folks to be informed by watching documentaries like the social dilemma and books that they recommend, be informed about these things and make your own decision. Cause there's a way to be on there and limit the negative impact on you and your negative impact on others. But if you feel strongly about it and you're able to get off it, it's something to consider. Um, I've actually found um, there is a platform called Mastodon, um, which is an open source social network, very closely modeled after 
Twitter. It's based on something called ActivityPub, which is a protocol that a number of different tools interoperate on. And I've actually found that it's really scratches my social itch. So because it's open source and it's not monetized by advertising, there's no advertising. And so there's no algorithm affecting the feed. You just follow people and you just see their posts in order. Um, and so that what I was saying about the appeal of putting my thoughts out there, finding people and getting their thoughts, I get that as well. And the last thing I'll say about this is now when I look back on Twitter or when I look over on Twitter and people share things or they cross post on both, I find there's just a different feel that even subconsciously I can just get a gut feel for. Like, it seems like that person's posting that just to get likes and engagement. Um, you know, people can even just a random, funny, specific interest of theirs. Like, it just feels like they're trying to get engagement. Whereas on Mastodon, it's super small. Like, you're not going to get a big business by posting things on Mastodon. And so when somebody posts something weird, I just have a much stronger confidence that they're just into that weird thing. And that gets me excited. And when I post things, I know that it's just a weird thing and um, it gets me excited as well. So I found that I really enjoy the dynamics of Mastodon a lot more, but I'm still on LinkedIn and some other big uh, social sites, um, YouTube, certainly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's some of my thought process on, on making those decisions. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that uh, very, very fairly put uh, argument for why, you know, it might it might make sense in some circumstances to get off Twitter and why some people can't and things like that. It is, as you say, you use the word dilemma. It is it is a genuine dilemma, right? You know, in all kinds of ways, for example, maybe because a platform is used for all kinds of disinformation and maybe the, the fact that like the, the structure or nature of it has disinformation sort of perpetuation or propagation built into it, but it might be all the more reason to stay on it. You know, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, there's the old, I, the old joke, I forget who came up with it, that Facebook is who you went to high school with, and Twitter is who you wish you went to high school with. But I've, I've had the experience over the years of seeing some sort of old, literally old high school kind of friends and acquaintances, obviously going down a path towards, you know, conspiracy or extremism and things like that. And on occasion, the gentlest nudge from someone they haven't spoken to for like literally 30 years can actually push, stop the inertia and kind of push them back in the other direction because it's just a voice from the past reminding you, show, holding up to you a mirror of what you used to be like and what you're like now. And it can sometimes really help. But at the same time, you know, for all those one or two good stories that you see like that, there's years and thousands of posts uh, being directed at the person and coming from them. Um, you know, that, that can be very, very damaging in lots of different ways. So it is, it is a real dilemma to decide what to do. It probably is time to, to move on in, in, in the interest of moving on uh, in, the, in the interview to move on to the next part where we talk about your book, Outside in React Development, a TDD primer. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about the importance that, uh, that books have generally in your life. And I know, I know it's something that you want to talk about um, and that you, you, you took the writing of this book very seriously. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the book's origin story. Uh, how did, how did you, at what point did you decide that you wanted to write a book and that this was the book you wanted to write? Yeah. So I came to Bigger Ranch, where I've been for six years is, is really very much tied up in all this. So I came to Bigger Ranch because um, I was learning about automated testing for software and test-driven development. And I was like, wow, this is really helping. And I think it could help even more if I understood it better. This is helping me get from the point of, I'm my software is getting worse and buggier over time. And I'm risking working nights and weekends to keep things running to a point where it's like, wow, like I can be confident in what I'm delivering. And I go home and hang out with my family and my friends. Um, so it was 
automated testing was providing real life change there. And, um, but I realized I was working in a, an organization and in a programming ecosystem where it was like new paths through the jungle to figure out testing. And I wanted to work somewhere where the testing paths were well trod. And Ruby on Rails is definitely one of those. Um, folks sometimes say about Ruby, uh, Rubyists write a lot of tests because they have to, because that's how flexible the language is. You need tests to give you safety. Um, but I joined the Ruby on Rails team at Bigger Ranch um, wanting to learn more about TDD. And I totally did. All the pairing with folks and learning from them, working on projects together with them, getting references to books that I could learn from, from them and digging into those. Um, it was really, really helpful where I grew a lot. A couple of years into that, um, the industry was kind of shifting and our work, the amount of work that we had available in Ruby on Rails was decreasing. And there was a real increase in front-end JavaScript frameworks, um, Vue.js, but especially React.js. And um, as a business, we needed to shift towards the front-end. And I was up for that. I was interested in that. And um, so I did some Vue.js, did some React, learned about it. Um, but even as I was testing the waters before I did the project work in those, I was like, cool, like I'm, I'm interested in learning these rich front-end JavaScript frameworks to make these rich user interactions and interfaces in the browser. But if I'm gonna be there, I wanna do test-driven development because it's essential for me, for me personally. Um, if I'm gonna be there, I wanna be able to do that. Um, and so I was learning from folks who's writing about test-driven development in React, in Vue, in Ember.js, another framework, learning from them, trying things out. So early on, I ended up creating a website called learntdd.in. And this was a place where I was just putting up very simple tutorials on doing test-driven development in a variety of these frameworks as I was learning different ones and trying out different ones because I wanted that to be available for me. I wanted to learn it. And once I learned it, I wanted to make it available to others so they could easily get access to it. Um, and there was a good encouragement at Big Nerd towards uh, creating content, blogging, personal blogging, blogging for the company. Um, so after that, I did um, a few more uh, standalone online online sites and different topics, even beyond individual blog posts, but like a whole site um, sharing on a given topic, like React Native testing um, or uh, a JSON API as a certain data format. Um, and actually, I was using tools that I find a lot of anal analogies with LeanPub. Um, so ViewPress is a name for a documentation tool in the Vue world. DocuSaurus is one in the React world. And the level of abstraction that they operate at is really, hey, like you can customize the themes and the sidebars and navigation and everything. Um, but really out of the box, they create a good, clean, useful documentation website. And I was like, great, that's what I want to do. I don't want to theme the website. There's a lot of people that are great visual designers, great uh, CSS stylist developers. And I'm like, I, this is just information to me. I just want something simple out there to get this information out there to people. And um, ViewPress and DocuSaurus have worked great for me in that regard. So um, next what came up was I found that um, for in the React world, there was a lot of principles about testing and TDD that I was having trouble articulating, having trouble getting across to people. Um, and there was ways that these principles worked together and built on one another, um, or even things, approaches to testing that only made sense within a test-driven development con uh, context. And so I, the way I say it is, um, I it, it, don't take this the wrong way. Um, <laughs> others, if I to create it, I don't want to create imposter syndrome for everyone. Um, but I wrote an, an online book first before Lean, but I wrote an online book about React test-driven development because I had trouble having conversations about it. It and and I really do mean that as as a a limitation thing. Like it's hard for me to talk about these things off the cuff, but it's easier for me to go put my thoughts together um, in a blog post or in this case in an online book. Um, that was the most helpful way for me to be able to articulate a strong point that would be useful to other people. 
Um, so that's what I mean when I say it, it, I had a, I wrote a book because I couldn't have conversations about it. Um, and it was an online book at first. So it's just freely available. Um, Test-driven development is not the most in-demand topic in the world right now. Uh, it's not the uh, biggest thing on Hacker News at the top of uh, those discussions. Um, but I just wanted to get that information out there because I wanted it. And I wanted another thing that's common about the way I think about these things. I wanted to put it out there to be available as an option to people. I didn't expect that I would become the authority on testing in React or JavaScript for the front end, um, but I didn't see options. Like unless people were reading 20 year old books about test-driven development, there wasn't really a good way for them to learn it. So I wanted to take principles I learned in Ruby that had even come from Java and from Smalltalk and contextualize them to React so that people had an easy option to read and then consider. And they could say, no, that's not useful to me. Or oh, I'll keep that as a tool in my tool belt. Every once in a while, I'll reach for it when something's really hard. Or maybe they would say, yeah, you know, this is this is the way I want to approach my React development. All of those are a win for me if they've gotten to consider the viewpoint and make their own decision about it. Um, I'll get briefer in my response here now. So after a few years of this online book being available there, um, I started to drift towards the idea of, of self-publishing um, or of publishing in some form. Um, one reason is I got me advice years ago that there's something about perceived value. If you give something away for free, it's like, cool, okay, I guess I might check it out. But if you say, hey, this is worth $10, $20, $30, people say, well, okay, let, let me think about that. You know, I think it is. I'm going to pay that and, and, and I'm going to take it seriously. I found myself reading through thoroughly the books that I bought. And things that I got for free, I, I was having trouble prioritizing getting back to. And I felt like it was useful. I felt like it was valuable. I actually have ideas for a few other books that I might write in the future. And I decided as sort of a lean approach, as an easy approach, let me take this content that's already available online in Markdown uh, and let me try it out on LeanPub. See what the tooling is like. See what the process is like. See if I enjoy it. See if anyone's interested. I had a friend who had also self-published, um, but he um, had come through the Bigner Ranch books because Bigner Ranch publishes guides on iOS and Android and various things. So he wanted to work on building a book publishing tool chain. For me, I did not want to do that. Like with ViewPress and DocuSaurus, I wanted tools where I could bring my content and I could get a book out the other side. And so I was so pumped to learn about LeanPub in that regard. Um, that was the right level of abstraction for me, at least for right now. Um, so that was the draw to the LeanPub tool chain. And then when it came to the LeanPub storefront and selling on here, um, I realized that, uh, you know, what I wanted was um, market visibility. I wanted people to see this information. That was what was most important to me. Even more than, than royalties, it was getting it out there. And so having LeanPub be a bookstore that people come to on different topics, having uh, the newsletters that go out to, to share it, like I wanted more people to hear about it. And so that was um, a great, great uh, value to me. And so now I'm at the stage where uh, I'm working with a friend who's designing, he's a professional designer designing a book cover. So there's a cooler book cover coming soon. Uh, I'm looking forward to taking advantage of the LeanPub features to export to uh, K Kindle, uh, KDP, I forget what it stands for. Um, I know you know, um, to get print on demand books. That was the other helpful thing, having a friend who had gone ahead of me. He was like, yeah, print on demand is a thing. There's no overhead. It's like, it's just a couple bucks off of each copy it's built and, and, and LeanPub equips me with the tools to be able to generate um, the, the files in the format they need, which is so great. Um, I think once the content is settled down a bit more, um, I'm, I'm hoping to put the book out in uh, Apple Books and on Kindle as an ebook as well, so that um, people are, it's available. If people are just looking on there, they're not searching the web in general. Um, but LeanPub will still be my preferred place to send folks because I love DRM free. I love people knowing that they own that, that ebook 
regardless of, of if LeanPub uh, goes away or I hope that doesn't happen or decides, nope, nobody can have Josh's TDD book anymore. Yoink. It's like, well, I've still got the copy of the book. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's what's led me here. And, uh, you know, given how impactful books have been to me, I mean, it really is a huge personal milestone to be a published milestone to be a published author. I do say to folks, um, I feel like my parents and my young kids aren't totally sure I've published a book until that Kindle physical copy shows up. So that'll be a nice milestone as well. Um, but yeah, being able to contribute to something permanent that if React is around 10 years from now, people can pull off that book and they can learn from it. Um, or maybe some of my future books that I hope to do that are more on theory, theories that will still um, you know, be applicable decades from now in software development. Um, the, the permanence of that, of sharing something that way is really motivating to me. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing for sharing that great story. Um, uh, there's so many there's so many parts moving parts there. Um, and I, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about uh, you know the importance of books in your life and a specific example of that. And um, and also you know the na the nature of books themselves, what makes them different, what makes a ebook different from an online a, a long online document or something like that. Those are really interesting. Uh, topics, but but before doing that, uh, given that you know the the title of this 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 episode is going to be the title of your book basically and your name, I didn't want to sort of move on to all that without spending a little bit of time talking about what outside in test driven development is uh, for those listening. And I think one thing I wanted to pull out of, of of the great story you told there was that I think a lot of people who are listening who might not be programmers themselves might be uh, a little bit pleased to hear that programmers sometimes have a hard time explaining themselves to other programmers because often people who aren't programmers have a hard time understanding programmers. Uh, but just uh, to get to get to things, talk about things at the level of principles, I find it's often really um, a sort of fun exercise as long as it doesn't come across as patronizing to sort of try to think of things from the perspective of someone who doesn't doesn't do it or know anything about it. And so, for example, one thing I think people might know about programming is that it's writing uh, you, you you write you're writing things down and um uh but if there's a typo for example imagine a, a, a physical paper book that you just couldn't open if there was one period out of place you know that's that's the image i like to come up with sort of like a program that doesn't run like it's just it's it's instructions to a computer as you mentioned earlier you're writing instructions to that computer and if your instructions are bad the typical computer will just stop there and and your your program won't won't run it won't work and so when, when, you know, and when I try to, when I explain that to people or sort of, you know, come with that sort of cartoonish level of explanation, the next thing they often think is, well, why wouldn't people, why would anyone ever run anything that was broken? Why wouldn't they know that it wasn't going to run by having some, something like a test in there to make sure that it wasn't going to go? And then you have to explain to them that actually sort of, there's a lot of people who look down on testing. Um, when, you know, from a layperson's perspective, it might be like, that's the most important thing ever. I don't want my plane falling out of the sky. And I, I definitely, if I tap on the app, I want it to open. Um, so I was wondering if, from given that sort of perspective, if you could talk a little bit about what what an actual, like what a, what a test is and why it's something that a lot of programmers and, and, and people who maybe are in, are in management who are sort of sitting on top of programmers who are trying to produce products and services uh, sometimes resist introducing tests, testing systematically into the development of their products. I'm glad you're asking me this now instead of a year ago, because my, my views <laughs> on this have definitely been maturing okay. to reflect the blog posts of a fair view of others and things like that. Um, th there are real trade-offs um, and, and testing is something where there's not a black and white. Um, it's kind of an area where there's diminishing returns and you could write more and more tests to get more and more confidence. Um, and yet it would be exponentially slower and exponentially more expensive to do it. 
And this is something that the programmers especially struggle with, the fact that there's trade-offs, the fact that it depends, um, and that the, the level of testing that you want and require for a pacemaker and for an airplane computer system is very different from a blog that's just showing information. And in between, there's things like uh, taking payments online. Okay, well, that needs a certain level of uh, security. Confidentiality of personally identifying information and medical medical records. Okay, that's maybe even a bigger thing. Um, tools that protect activists and people that are sharing information that maybe those in various kinds of power do not want them to be doing. Another kind of, of security that's needed there. And so really you have to make judgment calls all along there of like what level of confidence do I need and what level of tests um, or other 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 ways of assuring um, correct functioning. Um, there's other ways in, in, in addition to these automated tests that developers can write. There's different ways you can pull from them in different ways. Um, so that's so to, to go to what I should have said before of like, what is an automated test? Um, it's really code that tests your code. And so it's whether it's is at a very low level in code or whether it's something that's simulating what a user does, you're really writing code that's, well, think about it this way. Um, you can manually go through as even a non-technical user, you can test that a website works, test that an app works by tapping through it um, and seeing if it blows up or not and if it gives you the right results or not. Um, or even if it is intuitive or not, that's another kind of test. Does it look good visually or not? It's all ways that you can manually test some software. So automated tests are ways of instead of doing that by hand or maybe after you've done it once by hand, you write a software that does it automatically. And there's some things that that's more amenable to than others. When you have little bits of code that just take some data in and send some data out, it's pretty easy to write a test to automate that. When you have something that's testing that the screen stays the same and you haven't introduced a visual bug by making something disappear or be underneath something else, it's kind of a harder problem. And uh, so there's people that are making companies uh, to make money to do that by investing the effort to, to do that better. Um, something even harder is like, is the animation smooth? Like, is it 60 frames per second? Um, like, well, you know, just as a user, you feel it and especially experienced mobile app developer will say, ah, it feels like it's clunky, um, but it's hard for software to detect that. And then even beyond that, the idea of like, is, does this make sense? Is, are these words in the software intuitive? Does it make sense to the user that I do this and then I do that? Or even things like checking, like a credit card was charged. Does a paper receipt get spit out there? And does the system, I, I worked at a, uh, did a contract for a food service place. Like the ultimate test is, does someone at the drive-thru window get the bag with the food, correct food that they ordered? Like a full end-to-end -end test is testing that the food shows up in the bag. That's hard to automate. Uh, maybe with Elon Musk's robots or something like that, we'd be able to automate that eventually. Um, so all along there, you're making judgment calls of at each of those levels of testing and outside in really talks about those levels, actually low level code and uh, high level user interface things, which is really only mid-level compared to does the food show up in the bag? Um, but yeah. that's exactly what the book gets at. And that's what the new book cover is gonna show is these multiple loops of high level tests and low level that are stimulating what a user does and low level tests checking code inside and how tests for those can work together in a productive way, in a way that minimizes cost and maximizes the assurances you get from it. Yeah, and so speaking of those loops, actually, that's a great, great opportunity for me to ask what 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 is outside in test driven development as opposed to sort of middle out or something like that. Yeah. Um, so when test driven development was first originated, it started middle out or sometimes uh, inside out. It's sometimes called talking about building little bits of code, like little small pieces of code or modules or classes are two technical terms for those. And you would write tests to build out those individual pieces and then you'd assemble them together to build something up. 
uh, the Lego metaphor works really well there in terms of like, oh, I'm building these reusable pieces and tests can help you think about what is the way to make this reusable in a way that plugs well with other things. One downside to that approach to testing though, is you can build something that doesn't end up being used. And you can be theorizing like, oh, if I just build this really nice, this Lego piece that's so cool and looks so great and works just right. But then it turns out that the project you have doesn't need that Lego piece. That's effort that is not necessarily needed. Um, and I keep referencing uh, the lean startup and things like that, which I know y'all are knowledgeable about. And I actually haven't read any of the books. I just absorbed it from Twitter and osmosis. Um, but the idea of and you can correct me if this has nothing to do with lean, um, the idea of like, well, what is needed? And then let's let's just build the things that are needed to make that happen. That's related to outside in test driven development, where you're starting with what a user feature, you're starting with a test that says, as a user, I want to go into this screen, click this, input that, and then I want to see this as a result. You write that test first, and then you say, cool, okay, what Lego pieces do I need to make that happen? And is that piece already there? Great. Do I need to adjust that Lego piece? Great. Do I need to build a whole new Lego piece? Great. And so the outside in is the, the outside test that's walking you through just the pieces you need for that feature. And what it, what it avoids you doing is spending months and years building out things that aren't actually what's needed. And in fact, building out the minimum slice so you can very quickly get to, hey, that's a screen that I can use that that's helpful. And I've totally applied that on my side projects where the latest projects I've worked on is building a bookmarking app. There's a save links for myself because I love doing that. And I got to the point where I was like, okay, the minimum is I need a field where I can paste in a link and it saves it. And then it shows the links in a list. Cool. It's, it's actually already useful to me. I got a bunch of other things as far as marking red and tagging links and viewing them later and editing the, the metadata on them. But you know, if I can save links to a list and I can view them there, that's enough to be useful for me to get started. And without in, you know, whether your company's app would actually ship to end users like that, but you're at least shipping to internal users and the business internally, you can see, hey, I see the links, I see them being added. That allows me to give feedback on like, oh, now that I see that, I think the most important thing to do next is actually not the tagging. Let's do marking the link as red next. And so um, that's something that I don't even get into too much in the book, but by focusing on the user and user visible features, that allows the business and the project managers to steer things, to always be building what's the most useful, most important next small thing to build. And we build that before we go on to anything else. Yeah, thanks for thanks for that. That uh, it's really interesting the way you bring up uh, the concept of lean there, and and it was just sort of you're sending my mind off in all sorts of different directions about how like basically the same principles can apply in very different dimensions. Um, so, for example, you know the sort of concept of lean, you know, to give the sort of you know very high level hand wavy explanation starts in manufacturing, uh, but then Eric Ries comes out with the lean startup, which was which sort of comes out of the sort of rather than um, product development concerns, it comes out of customer development customer development concerns. And there, the idea of like, don't build what you don't need um, operates on the level of like, what is what do customers actually want? And customers in this case might be people who like, not are using an app, but but people who you want to sell an app to, for example, you know, um, uh, and they might then have users for it or something like that. But but basically, unless unless you sort of start from the perspective of what actually needs to be done here, you can end up building things that you don't need. And so from the perspective of programming an app to work, you might actually build little bits of code that have all this functionality that actually aren't required to achieve the goal that you that you need to achieve. But on, on another level, you might you might build a whole service that customers don't want. And in that case, you've also built something that you don't need, just not not in the kind of like engineering sense, but in the kind of 
you know, uh, you know, business sense. Um, but but the principle applies in the same way and is can actually be expressed in the same terms about not building what you need and getting out of the building, right? Getting outside, seeing things from the outside perspective. And one thing I really like that you explained very well in the book is um, how when you talk about these loops and things like that, is the way that um, if you start and there's sort of technical reasons why what one of the words one of the terms we we we've used is front end um why testing on the front end with the, with the design the thing that the customer might interact with in the web browser or something like that why testing there was much less robust until recently at least than it was for the back end because in the past this back end which we might think of like the program sitting on a server somewhere running and then it's displaying stuff to you in your web browser but the work is actually being done somewhere else more and more that work is being done as it were, kind of on the front end, so you can do more robust testing there. But the idea, partly of of of, uh, and you'll you'll have to sort of read the book to sort of really really understand this better than I could ever explain it. But but the idea of starting from the outside in means like I'm actually using the website and I click a button. Does it do what it needs to do? Right. If it doesn't, then your test has failed. And now what you do is you make an a, a unit test inside the program, and and then you try it from the outside again and see does that work. And then instead of just instead of just doing it internally, you do it from the outside. And the interesting thing about that is that the inside can change a lot, but your sort of diagram for the test can stay the same. Yeah, totally. That's a great explanation. And I want to try back to something you were saying about a uh, lean process as it relates to Lean Pub's whole approach. Um, I love the the book that y'all put out about the the lean process to educate people on how they can use the platform. And it was really helpful to me to learn about the idea of putting out books early when they're partially done to get to gauge interest and to direct and steer you to pivot into what your readers want or what there's a market for or an interest for. Now, for my first book here, the content was done in the online form before I went to LeanPub. And so that content, that, that part of pivoting didn't really come into my approach. And when I thought about these other books that I'm considering for the future, I was like, oh, you know, I kind of have a, a really clear idea of what I want to do. Like I have the message I want to put out there. And so I wasn't sure I'd be able to take advantage of that lean approach. But as I talked with someone at Big Nerd Ranch and getting input on ideas of, well, is your book going to have extended examples or short examples or none? Is it going to be programming language specific or generic? Because there's trade-offs. If it's general, a lot more people can read it. But if you don't have examples, it's like, I don't really follow what's going on. How does this work out in the real world? And so there's a lot of questions there. And I realized that that's the thing. If I do write that book, that's the thing I'll be pivoting on is putting it out there in a partial form on LeanPub and getting seen if there are any readers and getting readers input to say, is this helpful to have these short examples? Do you want a longer example? Do you want exercises where I actually ask you to do something and try it to put this into practice? Um, you know, are, are, are the, am I going into too much detail about a certain topic here? You're like, oh no, I understand that. I've gotten that from other books. What I'm really curious about is this part you mentioned just in passing, Josh, can you go into more detail on that? So that's when I realized that even though I have a strong overall message that I'm excited about getting out there for this future book, um, the details of what it might look like um, could vary a lot. And that lean publishing process of getting reader input, it's something that I really hope that I do get to write that book soon, because I'd love to engage with that part of lean pub and with an audience and to collaborate together on writing something cool. Normally, for the last part of the interview, we go uh, into the weeds and talk about, um, you know, how someone maybe has used lean pub to publish their book, their writing process and things like that. But you've actually already sort of naturally covered all that by talking about the story of your book. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, why you wrote it, which was sort of like how you did it was in was sort of like connected to why. Uh, and so you've actually kind of covered all that naturally enough. The one, th the one thing I'll add on that, uh, 
with respect to the weeds is KDP is Kindle Direct Publishing. This is this is Amazon's um, uh, publishing service, self-publishing service that you can use to actually make print books from LeanPub books uh, or, or from anywhere really. But like if you write a book using one of our uh, book writing processes, you can just click a button and get the print ready PDF export that you need that you can upload to Amazon or, or, or any other kind of um, uh, print on demand service. Uh, but since that's all been covered then, um, I wanted to take the opportunity if you've got the energy left um, to talk about sort of uh, another sort of version of in the weeds, but uh, about books, but why books are, are so important to you and what kind of what what makes them distinct from other formats. And if you could talk, for example, about um, uh, a specific book or, or book you've read recently, that sort of really impacted your thinking and just to, it's it's a bit it's a bit of a funny way to talk about it. But if you could talk specifically about um, a book on a topic and how it's how it's affected your thinking, that sort of might be the best way, the most hands on way in to answering that question about why books are important. Yeah, totally. That is an interesting way to approach the topic. So let me do that. Um, so I am very excited about software and about this agile world. And so my example is going to fall within that, um, but sort of outside of it, sort of on the fringes of it. So that book, Object Thinking by David West, um, talked about philosophers and philosophies that impact two ways that people think about software. And in the agile world, the agile side of things, he pointed to an author named Christopher Alexander. So Christopher Alexander was an architect, not a software architect. I can't remember if he's still alive or not. I hope he is. Um, not a software architect, but an architect of buildings. Um, and he also published books about architecture. And he had a pretty unconventional approach to thinking about architecture to the point that a lot of architects apparently would say like, this guy is very mystical. And like, this is not professional. Like this, we're building buildings. It's very it's concrete. I was about to say, yeah, it's literally concrete a lot of the times. Um, like what's with this spiritualism, this mysticism in here. Um, and yet so many of the people that I influenced me the most in the agile world pointed back to Christopher Alexander that I was like, I want to read one of these books. I want to check it out. So the one that I picked up, there's a few, but the one that I picked up is called The Timeless Way of Building. And he's talking about building buildings, uh, <laughs> dwellings, uh, you know, building buildings. Um, and uh, I'm not going to be able to do justice to his, his approach here, um, but to get to the, the spirit of it and, and talk about why it's impactful and then talk about the medium of it and how that impacts things. Um, he's really getting at, um, instead of a very mechanistic worldview of like, okay, we think top down, we think we're going to have a village or we're going to have one building or we're going to have a home. And so, you know, we just, well, they all have front entrances and they go here. And then behind that, usually there's a kitchen. And if not, there's that, this other room instead, um, it leads to very geometric, very um, set in stone. Again, all these building metaphors, unintentional, um, but kind of very dry and um, unfeeling environments. And he talks about the idea of these places, especially traditional places, um, traditional villages, you know, cultures all over the world. And it just feels more welcoming. You feel more alive there. Um, and he talks about why, and he talks about an approach to, I guess the way I'd summarize it in one sentence is fitting the, um, what you were designing and then building in architecture to the use, to the people who actually live there and how they interact and letting it be a feedback loop, just like we've been discussing, where you you let the way people actually interact influence what you build. Um, and that it lead, in his view, at, at, at a legitimately mystical level, um, but also a very practical level, he says, it just leaves, leads to places where you feel more alive and it feels like it's fit more to humans and it's for you instead of being a large concrete thing that's not for humans, that humans are only there incidentally. 
Um, so when I read about that, I'm not an architect or have interest, any interest in building. Uh, we're on this video call where I'm in almost effectively a closet right now. So spaces, it seems to me, don't feel too important to me. Um, but that resonated with so much of what I think about software. Um, so now talk to, uh, talking about the medium of it. So this book was published in the 70s. There's no digital version of it that I can find anywhere. Um, I'm sure somebody uh, has scanned it or something like that, but it's really cool to be able to go back to something from, you know, 60 years ago um, and to be able to have access to it and something that resonates with me and something that I've seen has the, this influenced that early programmer that influenced this, you know, not so long ago programmer that has influenced me today. And to be able to go back through that history of books to get to something substantial. Another thing about it I find is like, you know, something book length, it really kind of is a helpful medium and a helpful challenge to like, okay, well, do I have something that really is a significant amount, takes a significant amount of explanation? I'm glad to throw out a blog post when that's enough to make a point. I'm glad to make a social media post when that's enough to make a point, which it often isn't. Um, but when there's something that takes some exploration, some illustrating, uh, some explaining, some giving an example of, the length of a book or the kinds of lengths that books tend to have can be, be really helpful in that regard. Um, now, how about, you know, the medium of software and of the web, which is kind of what I came up through. It's, it's kind of ironic to me that I would end up writing a book um, and even be excited, being excited about that print book, because for a while, and I still am very excited about the web and the impact that it has for sharing information and getting it out there into the world. And I was super, super excited about that at various times in various ways. Um, so why, why, why go from an online book to a print book? Um, part of it is the perception of value. Um, this is one part like, oh, it's a website, I can get there. Part of it is permanence. Like I could put a paywall, paywall on my website, but then people have to trot, they're paying for access to my website for right now. And if it goes away, it goes away. And that, that they're out that money. Whereas with paper books and with uh, DRM free eBooks like LeanPub has, you have that permanently. Um, and you can get access to it in the future. You can, well, you can't resell uh, LeanPub eBooks. Please don't do that. Um, but paper books, you can resell. You can pass them along. And I can get Christopher Alexander's book now that's that's long time out of print. Um, uh, the, the last thing I'll say that I, I really like about book formats, and this is so funny, um, but I'm curious if you, Len, or others resonate with this. Um, I do not like continuous scrolling for anything long. I like turning pages. I can't believe that ebook editors have continuous scrolling options like no why would i ever want that because what i found from a from a usability standpoint just being able to look at a page like i'm on this page like cool i'm done this page flip i'm on to the next one the interaction and the cognitive load of that is very low whereas whereas for anything longer than a blog post when i'm scrolling continually down the page it is draining on me to have to think about have i scrolled far enough like have i have i missed any sentences by scrolling too far if I'm if I'm on a computer that has a sidebar that I can just click once to scroll down a page, but like you know that sidebar is really small. Am I clicking on it or am I clicking off of it? And so the the experience for me as a reader is just so far worse for continuous scrolling. Um, even uh, certain big tech book publishers that uh, have continuous scrolling for their libraries they make available. It's like I want pagination. I need pagination, and I respect people that are wired differently than me. Just going back to the blog posts, but for me. Um, yeah, like I, I, I would be challenged reading my online book because I, a bookmarking as well, remembering like how far did I get through that certain chapter? Oh, I got to go delete my bookmark for one chapter and add a bookmark for another by, for my browser bookmarks versus Kindle and Apple and even other concepts for these things. They save your place. Um, so the experience of going through a book at length 
Um, yeah, and all those other things that I just said, like a book is still a thing. And, and I read a lot of ebooks and I read a lot of paper books, um, but that's the things about it that I think there's still a place for it alongside the web. Um, I think it's a both and and provides new options for folks um, rather than exclusive thing. I don't, I don't think books or even eBooks are going away. It's funny. It's, it's, uh, it's been so long since we've actually had a sort of theoretical discussion of the medium on, on the podcast that I feel a bit rusty, but thank you very much for talking about it so well. Um, the one, the one thing I guess I'd add to that is that from um, my first experience reading, reading, texts on long texts online was project gutenberg clicking on the html and actually just scrolling through the entirety of like jane austen novels and dickens novels and you know um you know all kinds of other sort of part in particular just when i first got in it was sort of like you know 19th century english literature um and i had no no it just i, I had no problem at all with the scrolling as opposed to turning pages and i think it was partly because it was just such a magical thing to be able to like not have to pay for it and mm. not have to go to the library to get it, to just have the text there with me. Um, uh, that was, that was really, really a big deal. And like, I, I, you know, when you, when you mentioned it both end, I think that's just a perfect way, a perfect way of putting, putting it. It's, it's an irreconcilable, unresolvable thing, but like, you know, there's, uh, which is better, you know, print or papers, you know, or print or ebook, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, it's both and um, particularly, I mean, I, I, I've got a doctorate in English literature, so I spent a lot of time reading texts with the intention of potentially quoting them and having a searchable digital document where you can copy and paste the quote is a uh, way that can, if you just imagine the sort of process of like, I'm, I, no one can see it, but like, imagine you're, you've got a print book and you're, you're holding it in your lap or, and you're reading it and then you, oh, I need, I need to quote that line. Well, you need to do, you need to crack the spine so it'll stay open. You need to maybe put weights on it so you can put it down on your desk. And then you look at the book and you type a few words and then you look at your screen to make sure you got it right. And then you look back at the book and you look at your, and you look at your screen. And so working with texts for kind of research purposes, as it were, a single page searchable page where you can copy and paste from it is just an amazing improvement over, over paper and flipping and stuff like that. And um, particularly I, I've got my brother, my brother is 100% on your side, particularly with respect. He's an English professor, particularly with respect to um, remembering where something was in a book. He's like, I know it was two thirds of the way in, right. Or something like that. Right. Which he, which he kind of like, I mean, you could do with a scroll bar or something like that, but it's, it's just not the same, but you know, my, my, my counterpoint is I could command F. You know, uh, <laughs> that's better for me <laughs> for finding for finding things than uh, than remembering where it was in the in the book. Uh, but that's that's just that that's my perspective on it. That like I don't I don't feel any loss from not having the page thing. But I completely get why one why that actually is a, a total different, a very big difference from one experience of reading or another. Yeah. And for me, it's it's literally a both and in terms of books that I like. I mean, I have young kids. And so a lot of times, especially when they're real little, walking them around, rocking them to get them to sleep, and I'm reading something on my phone. Um, so that's that's when I leaned heavy towards ebooks, even for technical things. It's like, okay, I can't process this code sample now. I'll do that later, but I'm at least getting the high-level principles in this ebook. But now I'm going back, and a lot of the books most directly behind me on the shelf here are ones that are so meaningful to me from reading the eBooks, the ones that I've referenced all the time, I want a physical copy and I want it um, A, so that I can reference it easy physically, uh, B, so when I'm on a Zoom call or on a live stream, I can kind of show it and be like, this is the book I'm recommending, check it out. Um, but also just to make sure that I have it. And also, I, I don't know if that money goes directly to the author, but just to sort of like a show of support in some way, like I do not, uh, 
one of the most meaningful books to me, the ones I'm going to go back to every year, multiple times a year, like I'll buy a physical copy in addition to the digital copy. So both and. Yeah. And just, um, just to end on, on uh, I always promise to end on the weeds, but to end on a very specific note with, when it comes to having print copies of your book, if you're a consultant or, or something like that, or if you speak at conferences and stuff like that, actually having a print copy there for people to buy and to show support directly for you that way. Uh, and, and to have a sort of proof, it, it, it really makes a big difference to people. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we have our print ready PDF output, output code, uh, because it is, it is so, even though we don't produce print books ourselves, um, it is, it is so important. Uh, well, um, I think we've almost reached feature length in our interview here, Josh, but, uh, thank you for being so game to cover so much ground and thank you very much for being on the podcast and for being a lean pub author. Oh yeah. Well, I just enjoyed my experience working with LeanPub so much. Like listeners, please check it out if you haven't. If you have any inclinations of writing a book, there's so many options. You don't need to be a programmer for sure to write. I mean, there's multiple ways to to publish and send up books and stuff like that. But um I, I've just had so much fun. So if you've ever had the idea like, oh, maybe I would write a book, the whole point of LeanPub is to make it easy to dip your toes in. And Len didn't pay me or, or force me to say this. Um, it's just how I feel. And that's why I'm so excited to be here, to be a part of the LeanPub author community and, and Len to get to connect with you and to meet you and see some of our shared passions together today. So um, thanks so much for having me on. And, and I hope we individually stay in touch from here. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.